Good evening, dear colleagues. A pleasant, a pleasant evening to each and every one of you. Hello and welcome. In a minute, I'll introduce myself in some detail, but I just wanted to share with you, there's almost 700 of us from coast to coast together to talk about important topic in schizophrenia. Who am I? My name is Dr. Rakesh Jain, and on behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome you and thank you all, all 700 plus of you, for joining us for today's educational activity titled Tricky Business, Rethinking Our Approach to Tackling Schizophrenia. Rethinking Our Approach to Tackling Schizophrenia. I know I had you at hello, didn't I? Today's program is supported by an education grant from Boringer Engelheim, Inc., and brought to us by CME Outfitters, an award-winning accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians. As I said before, my name is Rakesh Jain, and I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Texas Tech University School of Medicine in Permian Basin, and of course, a colleague of yours. And I'm very, very pleased today to be joined by a most extraordinarily wonderful panel. In fact, when these two people write a paper, I am always dropping nearly everything I can get away from in order to read what they have to say. So in a second, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. And I'll, of course, start with you, Christoph, Dr. Carell. Would you mind introducing yourself? Thanks very much, Rakesh. It's really a pleasure being here. My name is Christoph Carell. I'm professor of psychiatry and molecular medicine at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell in New York, and also professor and chair of child and adolescent psychiatry at the Charité University in Berlin, Germany. Which is exactly where you're dialing in from, folks, the 700 of you listening in. It's actually midnight where Christoph is, but his passion for this topic should be quite evident that he is he's here with us and of course, entirely cognitively intact. So welcome, Christoph. Now I'll turn, if I may, to my fellow Texan, Dr. Don Valigan. Dr. Valigan, welcome. And Don, if you could introduce yourself to the audience, please. Absolutely. Hi, Christoph and Rakesh. I'm so excited to be here tonight. My name is Dawn Villigan, and I'm a clinical psychologist and a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. And when I said you two are excellent panel, that was not an underestimation in my behalf, in my estimation at all. Between the two of you, you have a lot to share with us. So let's jump right into it. A very first learning objective today is to identify the impact of disease, including unmet medical needs and deficiencies associated with cognitive impairment associated with schizophrenia in our unfortunate patients who suffer from schizophrenia. So what we'll do, if it's all right with everyone, we'll start by involving our audience, you, dear colleagues, with an audience response question. The question is, and there it is, what is the recovery rate for patients receiving treatment of schizophrenia? And the options range from 8%, 13.5, 22, 35, or I don't know. Please go ahead and vote, and we will discuss the result later.
Well, Christoph, Don, just looking at the numbers of people who voted, it's quite an extraordinary number. It's not just that we are engaged in this topic. Clearly, our audience feels the same way, the same passion. In a few minutes, folks, you will get to see the results uh, once we do the pre-post. But right now, it's, it's my opportunity to turn things over to you, Don, to get us started with a discussion on the unmet needs in schizophrenia. Over to you. Thanks, Rakesh. So where are we in the management of schizophrenia? You know, our antipsychotics work pretty well to decrease the positive symptoms. We can usually get voices to quiet down, people to be maybe a little bit less delusional or disorganized, but our antipsychotics do not treat negative symptoms and chaos effectively. And these are really important problems. Negative symptoms affect about 40% of individuals with schizophrenia, and these are the symptoms that really bother families and really get families upset. Things like not having any emotion or lacking motivation and interest and involvement in life and socially withdrawing from others. Families will tell me, oh, you know, um, it's like the illness took away his personality. Also, there are cognitive impairments that affect individuals with schizophrenia. About 80% of individuals with schizophrenia have cognitive impairment. And this refers to things like the ability to pay attention to something that requires effort or to direct your attention to what's important. Also, memory is impaired across multiple domains and executive functioning is impaired. And that's our ability to plan and carry out goal-directed activity, to use judgment and to solve problems in new situations. So even though we have somewhat good success with antipsychotics treating positive symptoms, because we're not really dealing well with cognitive symptoms and negative symptoms, people with schizophrenia have trouble in recovery and being able to have full lives. Now, it's also important to look at the course of symptoms in schizophrenia. If you go to countries where they have really good data on people from the time they're born all the way through to when they're conscripted into the armed services and beyond, we can see that this is a neurodevelopmental disorder. There are cognitive, motor, and social impairments that are more common in people with schizophrenia throughout their development than um, they're more common with people who are going to later develop psychosis. Psychosis is kind of at the end of this trajectory. And so we really see that um, people's impairments start way earlier. So individuals are experiencing negative symptoms and cognitive impairment well before they're experiencing psychosis. They've been experiencing these symptoms for much longer. Now, rates of recovery and disability haven't changed much since I've been working in this field, which is about 30 years. And truthfully, they haven't improved much in 70 years. Uh, only about 13.5% of individuals currently experience what we can call clinical and social recovery in schizophrenia. That's abysmal, right? Uh, we also think about positive symptoms a lot because those are the symptoms that get people into the hospital and emergency room. And we consider negative symptoms more like, you know, uh, costly because of the, the uh, indirect costs, things like um, job, job loss or unemployment or lack of productivity. But negative symptoms also contribute to service use. In fact, if you have two or more negative symptoms, you're 24% 24, 24 more likely to have a hospital admission, and you're likely to stay longer by 21 days. Not only that, the 12-month readmission rates for people with uh, two or more negative symptoms are 58% higher. 
So negative symptoms contribute to our service use. Not only that, negative symptoms and cognition share characteristics. So if you're not moving much and you're not doing much and you have lethargy, cognitively, it's hard for you to get an idea, to generate movement, to generate thought. So these kinds of symptoms reinforce one another and they kind of work together to conspire to keep people's trajectory for recovery uh, limited. Now, the European Psychiatric Association has developed guidance for the treatment of cognitive impairment in schizophrenia, also called CHIAS. Uh, and the guidelines involve pharmacological treatments, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, psychosocial treatments, and also somatic treatments like ECT and TMS. However, there are a huge number of unmet needs that remain. First of all, we need to optimize the available treatments that we have. I don't know what your caseload's like, but mine has lots and lots of people with schizophrenia who are treated at the utmost possibility of our antipsychotics, and they still are coping with ongoing positive symptoms that affect their everyday life. There's also negative and cognitive uh, symptoms, and we're not very good at figuring out with our current uh, treatments how we can help that. So a lot of times we don't even assess those things. Treatment adherence is still problematic with, you know, only half of the medicines that are prescribed being taken. So novel medications that have new mechanisms of action are needed because the D2 blockade and the adverse effects that come with them is not working for treating the whole person. We need to be individualizing our treatment. We need to be looking at the whole person and dealing with all of the signs and symptoms that comprise schizophrenia. So now I'm going to uh, turn it back over uh, to you. Thank you, Dawn. And it, it was just in a matter of five minutes that you painted a pretty devastating picture regarding the lives of our patients with schizophrenia. And you made me reflect on the fact, Dawn, that 1% of America, 1% of the world has schizophrenia. And you talked very eloquently about positive symptoms are a major challenge, but it does appear based on what you're teaching us, it's the negative and cognitive persistent symptoms that lead to a tremendous amount of burden. And you gave us the percentage. So let's do this, Don. Let's ask our colleagues, the hundreds of them who are listening to us, now that we're doing a post-test, what was the recovery rate as defined by Dr. Valigan, which is a very good standard of recovery? What is the recovery rate? for patients receiving treatment for schizophrenia. Lock in your responses. And thank you, by the way, all of you who are doing it for us. Don, there's so many people responding. I think your section really got them to kind of we think it, oh my goodness, and these are the results. Don, which was the correct answer? 13.5. That is less than one out of six. And those numbers are terrible. And I'm very pleased to report to you, as everyone can see. In fact, you saw Dr. Christoph give a very enthusiastic thumbs up or a major learning on our part, all the way from 27% to 76. Our appreciation that if we ourselves had a family member with schizophrenia, we would not be satisfied with just not getting rehospitalized or inadequate control over positive symptoms only. 
but based on the Veligan definition, if I may, the, the, the demands are much greater, positive, negative symptoms and cognitive symptoms. And we really are lucky that we have Dr. Christoph here because he was, was I right, Christoph, that you were actually part of the writing group for those guidelines. So let's do this. We're going to do this, folks. Uh, we heard the charge. By the way, you can move the slide off and maybe, yep, it's under my hands. We're going to move on to learning objective number two. And here I'll have the opportunity to offer you a little bit of information and education. The learning objective, as you can see, is to translate non-dopaminergic pathophysiology to the manifestation of cognitive impairment and negative symptoms in schizophrenia. Don't forget what Dawn said at the very end. She said it softly, but sometimes big messages come in very softly said words. She said, we're not doing so good and we're in need of new mechanisms of action. I hear you, Dawn. I hear you. So let's do this together. Let's all watch about a three-minute video where we will lay out for you a number of new mechanisms of actions that are emerging in the world of schizophrenia and that, of course, the three of us will be having an ongoing dialogue with you. So please go ahead and play that video. There are many proposed mechanisms to schizophrenia beyond the dopamine hypothesis. In a healthy patient, normal glutamatergic NMDA receptor function leads to proper downstream dopamine signaling. For the NMDA receptor to activate, glutamate must bind to the glutamate binding site, and neither glycine or deserine must bind to the allosteric glycine modulatory site. However, in patients with schizophrenia, NMDAR hypofunctioning leads to underactive cognitive functioning in the prefrontal cortex, which has been associated with cognitive and negative symptoms, as well as to overactive downstream glutamate signaling, which can cause psychotic symptoms associated with schizophrenia. Transporters such as GLY-T1 transport glycine back into the cell, and deamino acid oxidase, and enzyme degrades deserine. These are proposed targets for emerging therapies for schizophrenia that restore glutamate and dopamine signaling dysfunctions. In a healthy person, serotonin is released and binds to many serotonin receptors, including 5-HT2A and 5-HT2C receptors, which leads to proper downstream signaling of glutamate and dopamine. In patients with schizophrenia, there is an excess release of serotonin activating these receptors, which can lead to glutamate hyperactivity and dopamine pathway activation. Excess expression of 5-HT2A and 5-HT2C receptors are also seen in patients with schizophrenia, which can lead to these downstream effects. The muscarinic pathway involves three main parts of the brain in relationship to the treatment of schizophrenia. The prefrontal cortex, the ventral tegmental area, and the nucleus accumbens, a major component of this triatum. In the prefrontal cortex of a healthy patient, activation of M1 receptors stimulate inhibitory neurons to release GABA. This release of GABA then sends signals to the glutamatergic neuron, which causes a decrease in glutamate release in the BTA. Activation of the M4 autoreceptors in the BTA also lead to a decrease in acetylcholine release. Both this decrease in acetylcholine and in glutamate in the BTA causes a decrease of downstream dopamine release in the striatum. 
Additionally, M4 autoreceptors can be found on cholinergic interneurons in the striatum. Stimulation of these M4 autoreceptors mediates negative feedback control of acetylcholine, which decreases acetylcholine release, which then also indirectly decreases dopamine release in the striatum. Thus, by targeting the M1 and M4 receptors in these pathways, one can mitigate symptoms associated with schizophrenia. TAR1 is a G-alpha subunit protein-coupled receptor that is proposed to modulate neurotransmitters such as serotonin, glutamate, and dopamine in their transmission in the brain. TAR1 is activated by trace amines which resemble neurotransmitters. Trace amines activate TAR1 receptors in both pre- and postsynaptic neurons. Activated TAR1 receptors in the pre- and postsynaptic neurons interact with D2 receptors to promote inhibitory signaling. TAR1 receptor stimulation decreases dopamine hyperfunctioning presynaptically and reduces postsynaptic dopamine receptor availability by modulating postsynaptic dopamine receptors. Together, these mechanisms are proposed to reduce symptoms of schizophrenia. What an amazing video, right, Christoph and Don? What an amazing video. And I don't know what emotions the hundreds of colleagues listening to our CME event today had when they watched the three and a half minute video, but I'll share with you what I felt. First, I felt a bit overwhelmed. Did you feel a little bit that way too, dear colleagues? Like, oh my gosh, look at all this information coming my way. But it was quickly replaced by an exceedingly hopeful feeling I had, almost, almost like a, a heart feeling. And the feeling was, oh my gosh, there, there are opportunities that hopefully await our patients so that we can offer them the help that they need. And it was profoundly interesting to me that even though all the mechanisms we talked about kind of sort of ended up with dopamine, the route at which we got to it was dramatically different. Don's words are still ringing in my ears. We're in need of new mechanism of action. But before we go any further, I think it might be really important for us to Make sure we don't forget about our dopamine hypothesis. It's not being discarded as much as it's being updated. And the major update, if you will, is no longer praying entirely monotonously to the postsynaptic D2 receptor blockade mechanism of action. So the hypothesis that dopamine is involved in schizophrenia has some merit. It's not a meritless hypothesis, but the question really is, can we approach that in a different shape or form? So we have played with D2, we have played with D3, we've have, we actually have 16 or 17 atypicals, multiple typicals before it, but the side effect burden. But as importantly, as we heard from Dr. Veligan, while we may be pretty decent about going after the positive symptoms, we have done quite poorly. In fact, you know how poorly, right? More than 86% of patients don't get to where they need to be in terms of cognitive and negative symptoms. So there's the emergence of a new paradigm. And the paradigm, I have just three bullet points to alert you to. And then, of course, Christoph will take us further the presynaptic dysregulation that leads to dopamine dysfunction is now under appropriate and severe attack with new mechanisms of action. 
Number two, the goal is, if possible, to intervene well before there is, of course, the catastrophic psychosocial and biologic damage that happens to patients. And to better understand it, we created this brief slide for you. So the three and a half minute video you saw a minute ago, this is just in some ways a summarization of it. We're talking about glutamate. We're talking about NMDA receptor pathology. We've been talking about very different ways to go after it. You actually heard about substances and amino acids that we typically don't talk about in psychiatry, but we need to. Glycine, saline. We talk about TAR1. We talk about acetylcholine. We talk about serotonin, but in entirely different ways. These are the alternative treatment targets for not just schizophrenia, for by all means, we need to go after the disorder of schizophrenia, but we have to really focus on where the greatest unmet needs are, which in addition to positive symptoms, lie in the realm of cognitive and negative symptoms. So we need a master. We need a real master to help us understand these issues better. And Christoph, you're it, my friend. Help us understand these different mechanisms, please. Thank you so much, Rakesh, and thank you all for listening. I mean, you heard the video and you saw it. Let's now decompose that and go after some of these mechanisms to bring them even more alive. And you may be shocked again by this um, slide here, which is overwhelmingly complex. And the brain is overwhelmingly complex. And we'll be honing in on different receptor systems. But ultimately, we need to also understand how they intersect and interact. And I think the reason why schizophrenia as a word and as a term has still caught on and is still with us is because it's a very modern neural network dysregulation terminology. It's a schism between different parts of the brain and between different ways of stimulating or inhibiting. It's an EI, excitation inhibition disbalance. And when we talk about excitation and inhibition, we're talking about GABA, the break in the brain. We're talking about glutamate, which is the gas pedal, but also dopamine, which is our pleasure hormone, like going after things, enjoying things, making sense of the world. And we know that glutamate and dopamine are related to cognition. So the glutamate receptor system has a lot to do with NMDA receptors that are in the frontal lobe. And when you stimulate them, you can think better. But the NMDA receptor doesn't just depend on glutamate binding to it. There is a, a, a binding site, which is to the side, it's called allosteric, where glycine is a modulator. It basically enhances the signaling. And with this, without this coagonist, there's much less signaling going into the frontal lobe. So how can we then stimulate that site? How can we bring about an increase in serine, D-serine, D-cyclosyrin? Well, there are two ways of it. Either you decrease the reuptake out of the synaptic cleft back into the presynaptic terminal, and that is what a glycine transporter one inhibitor does. We had one in the past, bitopertin, which worked initially for negative symptoms, and then in large trials, unfortunately, it didn't work. But we'll talk about a different glycine transporter one inhibitor down the road of this program, icliperton, which 
may have even stronger binding to that transporter and thereby retains some of the serine that is definitely necessary to get more glutamate functioning into the frontal lobe. So that's one of the ways how we can potentially treat cognitive impairment in schizophrenia, potentially also negative symptoms. We've also heard about serotonin, and serotonin is interesting because when you have serotonin stimulation, remember now there's a reviving of the psychedelic therapy, that's 5-HT2A agonism, and it can make people experience things that are close to psychosis. So blocking that receptor, 5-HT2A, might potentially help with psychosis treatment as an augmentation. But the brain is a wonderful place. It doesn't function everywhere the same. So when you block 5-HT2A in some areas, you might decrease the psychosis. But there are other areas in the brain where when you block 5-HT2A, you're increasing dopamine. And that's in the motor strip of the striatum. That's why 5-HT2A, D2 dopamine antagonists actually have less EPS because they release via 2A, serotonin 2A blockades some dopamine in the motor strip of the striatum, but also in the frontal lobe. So you can potentially increase there some dopamine functioning or even glutamatergic functioning, which might help negative symptoms, potentially also cognition. So we'll talk about pimavanserin, which is another agent that actually blocks or inversely agonizes, that's even blocking more than blocking, it puts the gear not in neutral, it puts it in reverse, thereby enhancing the frontal lobe functioning and decreasing negative symptoms. Now comes the cholinergic system, and that's really exciting because we have one agent we'll talk about, and that is the anomaly introspium, CAR-XT, that has now three positive studies, three. That's most likely going to be the first of the new antipsychotics or drugs for psychosis, as we may want to call them, to not confuse them with the dopamine blockers. As Rakesh Jain said, we have had 70 years of postsynaptic dopamine blockade, which may not be what we need because we think the presynaptic dopamine tone is overactive. Now, what does the acetylcholine system do? Well, we have two different acetylcholine receptors. One is the nicotinic receptor system, We'll not talk about this at the moment, but there's also the muscarinic system. And there are five muscarinic receptors. They are the odd ones, one, three, and five. They're stimulatory downstream. And they're the even ones, two and four, that are inhibitory when you stimulate them. It's a little complex, but let's go through what happens when you stimulate the M4 receptor. It's a bottom-up approach to treating psychosis. M4 is an inhibitory one because it's presynaptic and an autoreceptor. Autoreceptors are the break in the system. So when you stimulate M4 in the midbrain, it reduces the dopamine tone that goes from the ventral tegmental area to the striatal area where we think psychosis is, and that's in the associative striatum. There is also an M4 receptor that is on the interneuronal side in the striatum that then also reduces locally the presynaptic output of dopamine. So that's at the bottom end. And potentially with our postsynaptic dopamine blockers, we're also blocking presynaptic dopamine receptors, that's the autoreceptor, too much 
thereby increasing presynaptic dopamine tone. And that's what we could re-regulate with M4 stimulation. What does M1 do centrally? M1 is a stimulatory receptor. When you agonize it, muscarinic 1 receptor agonism, you're stimulating, but you're stimulating the break, GABA. GABA intersects with glutamate, which is the gas pedal. So you're putting the brake on the gas pedal, and glutamate normally then goes down into the ventral tegmental area, again, kicking dopamine into the striatum. This is being reduced. So we have now a bottom-up as well as top-down approach to reducing dopamine tone. And it's very possible that we have different types of patients that have a ventral tegmental area problem with dopamine, that might have an interneuronal problem, uh, too much presynaptic dopamine tone, but also maybe a problem with the glutamatergic site, which we are currently not treating with our postsynaptic dopamine receptor blockers. So it's very intriguing that we might now be able to treat positive symptoms, total symptoms, maybe also negative symptoms via different mechanisms of action. And then finally, M1 doesn't only go via GABA and glutamate into the midbrain, it also stays in the frontal lobe and can actually stimulate cognition. That's why Zanomalin, an M1, M4 agonist, was actually studied first in dementia. And it worked because acetylcholine increase in the frontal lobe can help with cognition. And then finally, let's talk about a fourth receptor system, which you may not have heard much about. And that's the TAR1. What does TAR1 mean? That's trace amine associated receptor 1 receptors. What are trace amines? Well, they're also called false neurotransmitters because they're available in hundredfold lower concentration than our regular neurotransmitters, but they're actually precursors. They're shortened forms of them, and they're not released from um, a, a, a nerve terminal into a synaptic cleft. They're actually inside this nerve terminal. So it's a presynaptic floating receptor. And when you stimulate it, two or three things happen. First of all, on the postsynaptic side, the receptor that is stimulated goes to the postsynaptic side, hugs the dopamine receptor, and pulls it in. It's called heterodimerization. Thereby, without blocking the receptor, which can have side effects, EPS, cognitive secondary side effects, depression, Prolactin elevation, sedation. We have now an elimination of postsynaptic dopamine receptors, and they're also shifted from high affinity to low affinity. On the presynaptic side, there is actually a stimulation of the autoreceptor, which then decreases presynaptic dopamine tone. And there is also an increase or decreased dopamine firing in the presynaptic side. In addition to that, there may also be modulation of serotonin and glutamate, in addition, that can help with depression or negative symptoms. So TAR1 agonism is also currently being explored, with eulodoron being one of the forerunners, and we'll talk about that in the next section also. So let me turn it back then to you, I think, Rakesh, and see where we take it from here. Oh no, I, that I actually really can't. good. Yeah, no, but you, we're doing great. I, I really like it. I just want to kind of remind us very quickly, Christoph. We have about thirteen or fourteen more minutes to cover the didactics, and I think we're doing great. I'm really enjoying hearing both of you. 
please go Great. ahead. So, yes, so let's involve now the audience again with another audience response question. And this is about icloprotein. I already mentioned it, it's a glycine transporter one inhibitor, but what do you know about it? In a phase two study investigating the efficacy and safety of icloprotein, what were the efficacy findings at week 12? Was icloprotein, well, you can read it yourself. Um, and it also has an I don't know option. And we'll be going through this and hopefully giving you a lot of the information that you can answer this question even better. Yes, and one more time, I'll comment, Christoph. Colleagues are really chiming in. Look at all the responses coming in. So thank you, everyone. Great, so thank you to the audience. We'll review these responses and now turn it over back to Dr. Valligan to tell us something about the current standards of care for cognitive impairment associated with schizophrenia. Dawn. Thank you so much, Christoph. All right, so these are the current standards of care from the uh, European Psychiatric Association for treatment of chiasm. And first of all, there are pharmacotherapy recommendations. Of course, we want to use second-generation antipsychotics, and that's because they have a more favorable cognitive profile. And uh, for people who are on first generation, you want to consider switching them to second generation. You also want to think here, by the way, of other concomitant medications you're using that can affect cognition, like benztropine. Um, so you, you want to make sure that you're maximizing what you can do for uh, cognition with pharmacotherapy. Then they're recommending cognitive remediation and social cognition remediation. And so those kinds of programs work best according to the literature when they're embedded within the context of a global rehabilitation program, uh, a really comprehensive program. And so uh, those types of treatment are recommended. And then finally, physical and lifestyle interventions are recommended. And I'm going to talk more about all of these uh, in just a minute. So if we look at non-pharmacological therapy for CHIAS, there's two approaches in general. One is compensatory and the other restorative. We've mentioned cognitive remediation. This is a restorative approach where you come into the lab and you do drill and practice on tests of attention, memory, and planning. And the idea is that that cognitive improvement will translate into your life into functional improvement. Now, compensatory strategies, we developed one intervention at uh, San Antonio called cognitive adaptation training. And this is where we use environmental supports, things like signs and checklists and uh, the organization of belongings and electronic devices to cue and sequence appropriate behavior. The idea is that these supports bypass impairments in cognition and negative symptoms so that people can function better. Um, now in meta-analyses, compensatory strategies have been found to have at least moderate effects on functional outcome. In most of our CAT studies, we've found large effect sizes. Uh, there's also been meta-analyses of exercise showing moderate to large effect sizes in terms of cognition and social cognition. So this is really exciting, and I really don't think we sell exercise enough. I know it's really hard to get people motivated to do, but exercise treatments have a number of significant benefits for people with schizophrenia. 
Exercise interventions improve negative symptoms, quality of life, global functioning, and depressive symptoms. And so we have to do a better job in our clinical interactions with people to sell these and get people out there doing and moving. Finally, I'm going to talk about uh, some digital therapeutics for schizophrenia. These are evidence-based practices that are delivered uh, on a web platform, usually, or on a software platform, usually um, an app. And they're targeting many different areas in the mental health space. But for schizophrenia, for example, there is an app for cognitive behavior therapy of psychosis. People can go to the app and find questions they can ask themselves about their beliefs. They can also go on the app and find uh, strategies they can use for, say, persistent auditory hallucinations. So these digital therapeutics are being studied. They're working toward FDA approval. There have been a limited number that are successful right now, but these are going to come about in the future. And they're wonderful because they can extend what happens in therapy out into the real world. Now, if we really are going to have new medications that are targeting new symptoms like negative symptoms and cognition, we're going to have to get very good at assessing these domains. We don't traditionally do that. When, when our, our prescribers are talking to people, they're primarily focused on how to manage the positive symptoms because we got that, we can do that. But for negative symptoms and chiasm, we're going to have to get better at distinguishing between primary cognitive and negative symptoms and other things that look like cognitive or negative symptom problems. So, for example, if someone is sedated or they haven't slept, they're not going to do well cognitively, and they're also going to look lethargic like someone with negative symptoms. For somebody uh, who has EPS, again, their cognition is going to be impaired, and they're going to look like they have negative symptoms. For someone with paranoia, they might socially withdraw because of that paranoia, um, and look like someone who's socially isolated, who has negative symptoms. So we're going to have to get much better at distinguishing primary negative and cognitive symptoms from all these other things that can look like that. And now I'm going to turn it back over to, uh, I believe, to uh, you, Dr. Carell. Great. Thanks very much, Dawn. So yeah, let's now review some of the medications targeting these systems that we've been talking about in order to address the residual negative as well as cognitive symptoms. And we'll start with negative symptoms and with pimavanserin. Pimavanserin is a 5-HT2A antagonist, but also inverse agonist, putting the gear in reverse, and it's also a 5-HT2C antagonist. And we talked about the intersection between serotonin and dopamine, and both in the frontal lobe and in the nigrostriatal pathway, where we have the potential for neuromotor side effects, when you hear block 5-HT2A, you're somewhat enhancing dopamine tone. And that's behind the idea of treating negative symptoms with pimavanserin. And there was a preliminary five of, um, phase two study, which showed a um, very small effect overall. It was a 0.21 effect size. Remember, 0.2 is small. It's a fifth of the standard deviation. 0.5 is medium, half a standard deviation difference, and 0.8 is large. But this was partly driven by the 20 milligram arm. 34 milligrams is the approved dose for pimavanserin and Parkinson's psychosis. And the 34 milligrams had actually a, a 0.34 effect size. And that's currently being carried forward in the study program that will show us whether 
Pimavanserin is also helpful for negative symptoms. Then I've already talked about zanomelin and trospium. Why trospium? I haven't really mentioned. Zanomelin is an M1, M4 agonist. We focused on the brain where the stimulation of the muscarinic 1 and 4 receptor can be helpful. But muscarinic 1 receptor agonism peripherally can give you actually procholinergic side effects, nausea, vomiting. And in order to counter that, therefore, we had to actually add an a peripherally restricted anticholinergic. And in that sense, we're buffering somewhat those side effects. Now, on the other hand, though, there can also be side effects then that are anticholinergic, peripherally restricted, and that's dry mouth. For example, it can be constipation or dyspepsia. But in terms of efficacy, hands down, this has been a very successful program. Phase two study, an effect size of 0.75. Remember I said 0.5 is medium effect size, 0.8 is large. That's bordering on the large effect size. And our overall mean in the network meta-analysis is about 0 0.45, 0.42 effect size. So that was large. In the second study, the first phase three study, the effect size was 0.61 for total pans. And in the third positive study, it was 0 0.60. In addition to General total symptoms, there was also an improvement in positive symptoms, negative symptoms, general psychopathology. Obviously, the negative symptom improvement in people who were acutely ill is, can be somewhat driven by the overall positive symptom improvement. And then because of the M1 contribution to potentially improving cognition, there was also some cognitive testing that was run in addition, in these acutely ill patients, five-week study, and what we can see here is that overall, the effect size was again small. Yeah, it was between 0.1 and uh, 0.2. But in the 50% of patients who actually had uh, relevant cognitive impairment, at least one standard deviation be below the norm, here the effect size jumped to 0.5. That's number one. And number two, when you correlate the improvement in cognition to the improvement of total symptoms, there was no correlation. That doesn't exclude that there could be so-called pseudo-specificity that some of the positive symptoms or negative symptom improvement could also be attributed or could drive partially the cognitive improvement. But it's encouraging that overall there doesn't seem to be a correlation and that there is a cognitive improvement in these patients at week five. Obviously, for it to be approved for cognition, zanobolintrospium would have to be studied in patients who are relatively stable with few positive symptoms, very little depression, and also no extraparental side effects. Looking now at the TAR1 agonist, that is also a 5-HT1A serotonin agonist, zanomelin prospium was on the cholinergic side. We're now talking TAR1. We have Euloderont. Euloderont is an agent that stimulates TAR1 and was shown to actually, without postsynaptic dopamine blockade, to treat total symptoms, positive symptoms, negative symptoms, and depression in patients with schizophrenia. I should highlight again, I mean, it's implicit, none of the agents we've talked about, pimavanserin, zanomelintrospium, or euloderont, actually sit at the postsynaptic dopamine receptor. And they have shown to improve parts of cognition and 
negative symptoms and total symptoms associated with schizophrenia. And that is pretty novel and makes us very excited. There's another way of improving glutamatergic tone, and that is by not using the glycine transporter one inhibitor we'll talk about in a minute, where you're basically keeping the glycine in the synaptic cleft by not being it removed into the presynaptic terminal, but you could also block the breakdown of serine and D-serine. And that is a DAAO, D-amino acid oxidase inhibitor, and Luvaduxistat that failed for study in negative symptoms is currently being pursued for cognition because there was a signal in that study that maybe a DAAO inhibitor, Luvaduxistat, could improve cognition in schizophrenia. But let's finish up with icloperton, and that was one of the questions you had to answer. What was the dose-response relationship? So here there were four doses tested, two, five, 10, and also uh, 25. And you can see that two and five are far worse than 10 and 25. So there is a dose-dependent stepping up, and there was a good effect with this medication. It's not yet FDA-approved, but it's tested in the CONNECT studies. And we need to see both an improvement in cognition that was done with a matrix battery, the MCCB. And there was a significant effect in the phase 2B study at 26 weeks in patients who were relatively stable. And there were better effects seen in patients who were younger, earlier in the illness phase, had not only cognitive but also negative symptoms and were on only one antipsychotic and not two, and not on a benzodiazepine. Here's another display of the improvement in cognition, but at the bottom, there is also the result for functionality. And the FDA actually requires that patients not only improve significantly on cognition, but also on functionality. And here the scores did not separate yet, but it was a smaller study. And the phase three connect study program looks at both the scores, but also at a virtual reality testing of functionality. Okay, let's revisit the question again um, about icloperton. Was there a 10 and 25 milligram? Uh, well, 10 and 25 were actually similarly effective, as you could see, but the question is, um, the dose response was only seen at two and five. What was the, was there a, a positive effect or not versus placebo? One more time, Christoph. A lot of people are responding. I'm really liking this. Yes, so let's see. So basically, I think the question was also worded a little bit difficult because there is no dose-dependent response between uh, 10 and 25, but below that there is one. Um, so um, I think both these answers are in a way correct. But let's um, go next then to get closer to our question and answer session. So in conclusion, we have seen that there's historically very little progress that has been made for the recovery rates and disability impacts of schizophrenia. 
and Don Valligan has uh, very eloquently described that. There are currently no FDA-approved uh, treatments for uh, cognitive impairment and schizophrenia, as well as for negative symptoms. But there are therapies with novel mechanisms of action that offer hope to treat negative and cognitive symptom complexes, but also potentially residual positive symptoms. And icloprotein and ulodorant have received breakthrough therapy designation in schizophrenia, as well as other non-dopamine blocking mechanisms show promise, including the muscarinic agonism and potentially also 5-HD2A inverse agonism. Let me turn now um, back to you, Rakesh. I will be happy to grab the baton and let's go to the finish line. Let's do that. So dear colleagues, all of you, I really hope today's program was helpful. We're about to turn to um, our Q&A, but before we go there, just for a second, take a measure of what we learned today from Dawn. Very early on, we heard there are lots of unmet needs, but she gave us a hopeful message. There are non-pharmacological ways that we can think about this. From Christoph, we learned about these glutamatergic. We heard about the TAR1. We heard about the cholinergic mechanisms. We heard about glycine transport. I mean, you really have gotten us fired up. So these SMART goals, I hope, really are summarizing our desire to recognize the impact of the unmet needs associated with the cognitive and negative symptoms of schizophrenia, and also learning how to, to understand and differentiate the differences between the glutamatergic system, the serotonergic system. And Christoph, the way you helped me understand muscarinic system, I think it's going to stick with me for hopefully decades to come. And of course, the trace amine activity and how that impacts. So with all that said, we actually, in fact, have quite a bit of time for questions. Dear colleagues, are you guys ready for me to pose some questions to you? I hope the answer sure. is yes from both of you. All right. So of tons of questions. Let's jump right into it. The first question is, I'll start with you, Don, and then Christoph, I would love for you to also weigh in. If these symptoms, cognitive and negative symptoms, are as impairing as you tell us, this colleague asks, what's a good way? What instrument should I be using in my practice? Difficult question because in our practices, we don't use many. So I'm sure that as these medications come to approval, there are going to be brief um, validated ways of assessing cognition and negative symptoms in clinical practice. So there are brief negative symptom assessments that are available that have four items, and there are brief um, measures of cognition that have been used, say, in the Texas Medication Algorithm Project study. So I think that there's things out there, but nothing's been formalized, and it's going to change the way we, we run our visits. I'm not sure yeah. if Christoph has something to say about that. But before we go to Christoph, Don, clinically, if you could educate us on two questions you learn to ask patients to detect negative cognitive symptom impairments. Give us a couple of practical tips, if you will. The first one is, tell me from the time you get up in the morning till the time you go to bed at night, how do you spend a typical day? Mm. Oh, you make breakfast. Who does that? Do you make it or does someone make it for you? Um, you know, how do you remember to take your medicines? What do you do next? Do you do that by yourself or with other people? So it's really getting a picture of their day will help you with negative symptoms. Uh, and for cognition, there are some interview measures that haven't been used in clinical practice, but may, but maybe. Okay, that's actually very helpful, really tremendously helpful. 
Christoph, in your clinical practice, could you perhaps share a couple of questions you have learned to ask to at least get to thinking about cognitive and negative symptoms in your patients with schizophrenia? Sure, I think for the negative symptoms, there's a lot of social amotivation. So have you seen anyone outside of your family in the last, since last we met? How often, or only someone with the family? How much time do you spend with them? Is it only because they ask you to do it, or do you reach out to them? And then on the cognitive side, I agree with Dawn that ultimately we might get some handheld um, um, tests that we can use or even bedside tests. But questions are, what about when you go shopping and you have a list of things? Do you forget about them? What mm -hmm. about um, paying attention to a movie? Can you actually remember the storyline or do you basically exit? Can you read a brief paragraph in a newspaper or even a couple of pages in the book or do you then drift away? Those are some, some of the questions. And often I ask actually caretakers that can tell me whether or not these behaviors are taking place. Right. Based on what both of you are sharing, keeping in mind that positive symptoms have to be assessed, simply don't forget about that triad, right? Positive, negative, cognitive symptoms. I think that's an important takeaway message for us. Okay, Christoph, if I may start with you on this one, what is the estimated time frame for the FDA approval of these medications? And I think our colleagues by that mean the glutamate-based molecules, the TAR1 mechanism, as well as the muscarinic. Yeah, so the front runner is really Zanormalin Trospium, um, the muscarinic M1, M4 agonist, um, paired with the uh, peripherally restricted um, cholinergic antagonist. And that is most likely going to be submitted in fall this year. And then it takes about one year for the FDA to make its decision. So by the fall, winter 2024, this could be in our hands. Um, the TAR1 agents will read out, I think, at the end of this year, beginning of next year. So that could then be submission a year later. So that could be half a year behind that. There's another muscarinic agent we haven't talked about, which is an M4 positive allosteric modulator, amraclidine. That's maybe a year and a half behind zanormalin um, trospium. And for the pimavanserin results, again, they will read out about in half a year, three quarters of a year. And then again, a year later, nine to 12 months, they could be submitted. So we're, we're really at an exciting time where within the next one and a half to three years, we could see between one and three or four different agents and two to three different mechanisms of action come our way. 70 years of waiting and the next three years potentially could be entirely game-changing. Christoph, thanks for bringing that excitement to us. Don. Your comments about digital therapeutics for schizophrenia got a lot of people excited. So the question really is, will these be digital therapeutics that will be prescribed? Will they be only used while the patient is in the clinic? Will they take them? Will they do it in their own environment? What are the thoughts? Well, it's not for everyone, but especially for the younger patients who are tech savvy, they really like these digital approaches. We've used, you know, smart pill containers that communicate with people. We've used the mm -hmm. CBT app. And there are, there are lots of things online as well that, that can help people in terms of, you know, calmness, meditation, mindfulness. Um, but many of these are not approved by the FDA. And those are the ones we're waiting for to complement our therapies, to use between visits, et cetera. 
I got it. So it's exciting. We got to keep our eyes on it. I think that's terrific. Christoph, coming to you, if I may, the question really is these new agents, and I think your conversation about Eclipertin got people really thinking. The question is, do we use the monotherapy? Do we use them in combination? What is your prediction? Yeah, so um, I mean, didn't make that clear, um, so I apologize for that. But pimavanserin for negative symptoms and icloperitin for cognition are tested currently as augmentation of the current antipsychotic efficacy drugs that we have because they're targeting just the subsyndrome of either negative symptoms with pimavanserin or icloperitin for cognition. Whereas uh, the TAR1 agonist, Eulodorant, and Xanomaly uh, and Trospium are monotherapy at the moment, although it's really exciting to think that they could also complement and synerg work synergistically in combination with the current dopamine blockers in those that have partial response. And there's actually a trial program ongoing with Xanomaly and Trospium, the ARISE program that tests that. Yeah, so it sounds like cognitive symptoms, negative symptoms, are not going to be ignored by any of these new mechanisms of action, that they're potentially targets for us. Don, your, your slide about exercise immediately provoked lots of good excitement in our colleagues. Question really is, how do you get your patients with schizophrenia to exercise and what specifically do you ask them to do? Just kind of reminding you guys, we have about a minute and a half and 20 more questions. So if I may just request the simp responses from you. Let's do it together is how I do it. Um, we go out and, 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 and work out with people uh, to keep them motivated. Uh, and that's really the best way. I have a lot of staff who does psychosocial treatment and they do it together or in groups can be very helpful. A number of these interventions have been proving effective, just walking in a mall, meeting together and walking. So um, not everybody will do it, but the people that will do it will get benefit. That's wonderful. Walking in the mall really is such a combination of, as Christoph was saying, both a counteracting effect on negative symptoms of schizophrenia, cognitive symptoms, and of course, the social isolation is diminished. That's, that's excellent. That's excellent. Christoph, here's a very good question. Sure. The, the person says, sure. Our current antipsychotics that work on D2, D3, really don't do very well with negative and cognitive symptoms, but are there ones that tend to do better than others? Or is it pretty uniformly a challenging issue? Well, uh, Don Velligan already said that there can be secondary negative and cognitive symptoms. So in patients who have extrapyramidal side effects, who have sedation, somnolence, or where medications have anticholinergic side effects, those might not do as well as the other medications. And we've seen that potentially partial agonists can be helpful and maybe especially a D3 preferring partial agonist. Uh, Cariprazine has shown in comparison to risperidone to shine in terms of negative symptoms. So I think that's where we are right now, but it certainly is not doing well enough and adding something to it that specifically can help negative and cognitive symptoms would be very helpful. Ah. We've just flat out run out of time, guys, but there are so many other questions. But the take-home message, I think, is the following. We want something to be a paradigm shifter with our patients with schizophrenia, with all sorts of symptoms. It sounds like cognitive and negative symptoms really, truly grabbed our attention. I hope you both enjoyed presenting. We certainly enjoyed having you. And as your moderator, 
I learned so much from both of you. I did not oversell either one of you to our audience members when I said two real experts honestly offering their advice. So in conclusion, dear colleagues, thank you all so very much for being with us today and discussing the fascinating topics that we, what we discussed in a minute or so. As you can see on this slide, please do visit the Neuropsychiatric Hub. There's quite a few resources for you to, to examine. So be sure to do that. And then very finally, you of course do want to receive credit for being with us today. This was of course a CME program. And to receive CME-CE credit, you must complete the post-test and evaluation under the request credit tab of this program. And thank you all for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Carell. Thank you so much, Dr. Belligan. Thank you. It was great. Very much. It really was, wasn't it? I really am charged up. I don't know if you can see it or feel it, but I think I'm representing my hundreds of colleagues in both expressing gratitude to you both and gratitude for all the new developments. With that, thank you, everyone. Be safe and take care. Goodbye.